0: Searchcast, a podcast hosted by Isaacson Miller. My name is Rhett Sosby, and I'm a people and culture specialist here at the firm and a producer of this podcast, along with Devin Benjamin, our podcast content manager. I'm pleased to introduce today's host, Philip Petri. Philip joined Isaacson Miller in 2006 and is the firm's human services practice area lead. He is committed to finding visionary and mission-driven leaders for organizations that are serving some of society's most marginalized people, including those with intellectual and developmental disabilities, the homeless, and the formerly incarcerated. Our guest today is Kevin Fee. Kevin is the founder and CEO of Angler West Consultants, a mergers and acquisitions intermediary focused on transactions involving specialty healthcare, alternative education, and human services organizations. He founded the firm in 1997 following a 25-year career as Chief Financial Officer of some of the nation's largest nonprofit behavioral health and social services provider organizations, including children's mental health, addictions, and developmental disabilities organizations. Thanks for joining us today, Kevin. And with that, I'll turn it over to Philip.
1: Kevin, you've been a longtime friend of the firm, and we have turned to you for advice over the years because of your deep experience. And... Extensive connections with leaders in human services, broadly speaking, and for that we're grateful. And I wonder if you could start off today by telling us a bit about some of the major changes that you've seen in the human services sector over the last 10 years.
2: Well, Philip, I highlight uh, uh, several things. I think first is the growing involvement of for profit organizations in what traditionally had been fields dominated by nonprofits. I'm referring to things like autism services or developmental disabilities or foster care or special education, which have become subjects of interest to private equity uh, organizations. Second of all, uh, there's been a consistent trend over time towards shifting the reimbursement arrangements away from cost-based and fee-for-service models to value-based reimbursements, and that, in turn, has focused greater attention on the importance of evidence-based clinical practices, and it's also accelerated the adoption of technology in the field. Thirdly, there's a, there's a greatly expanded recognition, I think, in society that social factors have a significant impact on health care and healthcare costs. And so the social determinants of health and the integration of health services and human services has been uh, advancing over this past decade. And then finally, I would mention, Philip, one often forecasted change that is actually not proceeded as I would have expected, and that's industry consolidation, especially amongst nonprofit organizations. Nonprofit uh, human service organizations remain essentially a highly fragmented industry, although there's been a gradual increase in the number of business combinations in recent years.
1: So a lot of change you've seen in, in the last 10 years, and I think as we look forward Um, there are probably going to be even more changes. And what do you think the biggest challenges are facing the sector as we look look into the coming years?
2: A perennial challenge for human service organizations has to do with the recruitment and retention of qualified staff, especially direct care workers, but of course, executives as well. I think that challenge uh, has probably been greatly aggravated by COVID-19 which has demonstrated that some of these essential workers are actually at considerable personal risk, despite their traditionally modest compensation. The nonprofit segment additionally faces some uh, significant challenges as a consequence of the competitive threat posed by private equity platforms, as uh, most nonprofits face uh, structural constraints on capital raising. Stemming from their absence, the absence of any owners of nonprofits, and consequently, the inability to attract equity investors. Mm,
1: interesting, interesting. And you, you touched on one of the questions that I had for you, and that is the the workforce um, and how to to uh, minimize the uh, the turnover. Um, we know that not-for-profit uh, organizations are simply not able to pay. Direct care providers, what they're worth. They work really very hard. And I just wonder if there are any creative ways out there that you've seen organizations support and incentivize their staff and, and lower the, the turnover.
2: Well, you know, so, so much has been written about this tremendously difficult problem, and yet there doesn't seem to be any silver bullet. Uh, I have seen two ideas that I thought were especially interesting, though, in recent times. One involves a a Nevada-based firm uh, named Talentel that markets psychometric tests, which are designed to assist providers in the selection process, and their their business concept proceeds from the premise that the key to retaining a committed and well-qualified direct care workforce is to recruit the right individuals from the start. So I think that is uh, an interesting uh, uh, development with some real potential to make a dent in this uh, complicated problem. Another creative idea I've seen recently is the adoption of employee ownership business models by providers. There are now several 100% employee-owned service providers across the country. And even one nonprofit has demonstrated that nonprofits can sponsor ESOPs so long as they have one or more for-profit subsidiaries. So I think those are two potentially creative approaches to trying to uh, chip away at this uh, really challenging
1: problem. Yes, it's it's really very interesting. You, you know, one of the the big questions out there is is managed care and and what the impact this is having and is going to have on the human services sector. This is a question that comes up with uh, human services boards all the time, and I'm um, just wondering. What your thoughts are?
2: Well, you know, uh, uh, Philip, managed care has played a growing role in human services for a number of years now. And, and of course, that role is largely driven by the need to rec- to reduce the cost to public agencies whose budgets have been stressed by Medicaid's outsized inflation. And the real prospect of still greater problems ahead as the population in the United States ages. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Managed care has demonstrated uh, relatively limited success in reducing the rate of growth in care costs. And so alternative approaches are being explored in states across the
1: country. Very good. Thank you. One of the things that we're seeing and that you touched on earlier uh, is consolidation, organizations that are merging. And I'm just wondering what you would share as some of the benefits of, of two organizations merging.
2: Well, you know, uh, uh, in every industry, uh, uh, Philip, uh, there are benefits to size associated with, of course, lower costs due to greater scale. And there are also benefits to economies of scope, where, you know, some organizations that might provide, uh, for example, residential services to children might add a special education school or alternative school. And, And in the nonprofit realm, What's significant about a business combinations so and potentially hugely beneficial is that they don't encounter the risk of overpaying that is a, a significant factor for for-profit companies. And the reason they don't uh, face that risk is, of course, that nonprofits have no owners. And as a result, when two nonprofits combine their businesses, they essentially combine their balance sheets that there is no purchase price, per se, as there is not for-profit transactions. So this is one way that nonprofits, which can access the equity markets, can actually build the kind of resource base that can enable them to expand without undertaking undue financial risk. So business combinations are important across the economy for creating scale and scope benefits, but in nonprofits, I think they're especially critical.
1: You know, in conversations that I have with a lot of boards of of uh, smaller organizations i encounter resistance to the idea of a merger for a whole host of reasons but what i hear most often is you know a fear of losing identity a threat to the organization's treasured culture and i wonder how you respond to to those objections and concerns
2: well well, you know uh, 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 it seems to me that when you join a nonprofit board or when you become an officer of a nonprofit corporation, you need to place first and foremost the mission for which the organization was created. And of course, we all have personal interests and, and preferences of one sort or another, but I think we have to set those things aside when it comes to uh, our involvement with nonprofit organizations. Uh, it is the beneficiaries whose interests must always prevail. Now, I, I, I've seen instances where uh, nonprofit boards have been paralyzed by, uh, you know, and deferred difficult decisions that would advance the organization's mission. And I've seen that even when the chief executive is encouraging a different course. So, you know, this is a, a common problem. And of course, on top of that, there's obviously other instances where the impediment is actually the chief executive who may have, uh, you know, a private interest as well, uh, Many times, of course, uh, uh, chief executives have been in that role for a number of years, and, and, you know, they're enjoying it and would prefer to continue it. Whatever the, the source, though, of, of institutional inertia, the consequences are always the same. Both the institution and the people it was created to serve uh, see their interests impaired, and and sometimes that uh, that impairment is uh, is something that is impossible to recover from. So in, in presentations and in publications of mine, I try to uh, make the point always that, that for-profit organizations have mechanisms like shareholder resolutions and activist investors and public market and share prices that discipline leaders who have been behaving improperly or, or essentially acting as unfaithful agents. Uh, In theory, for nonprofits where those things do not exist, that role was left to the state attorney generals, but they've historically been very reluctant to target poor performing nonprofit boards out of a concern that they might deter other citizens from participating in community organizations. From my point of view, poor stewardship of nonprofit resources is a really significant national problem. And we need to devise some creative solution because the work being done by nonprofits is important.
1: Very interesting. You know, oftentimes organizations are looking for a merger, looking to be acquired where, when they are you know, in financial distress. And what are the risks in waiting until an organization is at that point?
2: It's, it's a, 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 a very appropriate question for this point in time because the... The tendency in industries, generally speaking, that are consolidating is for, in the the initial phase, for larger organizations to acquire smaller ones. And that sort of process has been ongoing in the uh, human services industry for a few years now. But the next stage of that process involves uh, larger organizations combining with other large organizations. And it starts to create a kind of uh, difficult industry environment for smaller enterprises because they now combined larger organizations find it uneconomic to even consider business combinations with small enterprises. So we're at a kind of crossroads at this point. uh, When you see that larger nonprofits start to combine uh, the smaller nonprofits, which currently have alternatives may find themselves very much out in the cold, and especially those ones that have uh, a measure of financial distress. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, there's going to be a kind of shakeout in the nonprofit human services world, and uh, that time is kind of upon us. So this notion of uh, of facing up to uh, difficult issues is is quite important and
1: timely. Mm-hmm. What about... Succession planning. Um, what's your advice to boards about succession planning? Both, well, I guess I'm thinking specifically about succession planning uh, of of the senior leadership, uh, the staff.
2: So many of the uh, nonprofit organizations, especially in human services, were actually founded in the 1970s or early 1980s, and as a consequence, many of the founders are reaching retirement age at this point. And, and for boards, this uh, this confronts the board with a, a very challenging situation, because on the one hand, as we've been discussing, the human service uh, uh, industry is, is starting to consolidate. And on the other hand, of course, human services and all other industries are facing the potential technological revolution associated with 5G. And for those reasons, uh, the selection of a new chief executive and succession planning more generally is uh is taking on I think an even greater urgency than it might otherwise and indeed for many nonprofits i think succession planning has uh, essentially existential implications at this point.
1: Mm-hmm. And what about boards how do you advise boards to think about recruiting new members i have uh, seen a lot of organizations who have boards made up of folks oftentimes who have a family member being served by the organization. They have a real passion for the mission of the organization, but they don't bring governance experience. So I, I wonder how, how you advise organizations that you work with.
2: Well, you know, Philip, uh, uh, nonprofit boards historically have tended to prioritize trustees who had a personal relationship with the, with the uh, you know the organization by virtue of having family members serve there, or alternately uh, they've sought trustees who, who could either give or get financial support or deploy social capital to benefit the organization in other ways. Speaking uh, specifically about nonprofit human service organizations, I think I'd advise boards at this point to adopt a different approach. Focusing primarily on adding board members with deep human services industry experience. My, my reasoning is that the board's task of monitoring management is likely to become much more demanding in the years ahead as the scale of organizations and the technology that they deploy uh, makes them increasingly more complex. I note that private equity platforms competing with nonprofits already prioritize boards comprised of industry experts. And and these uh, uh, industry experts may often be uh, highly compensated for their efforts. In my view, competitive pressures in the future may result in more nonprofits compensating directors generally, or perhaps compensating one or more lead directors who might be former industry chief executives who are assigned specific and unique duties by the board as a whole.
1: Hmm. Very interesting. Well, we really thank you for sharing your insights today. This has been very helpful. And um, thank you again. I'll turn it over to Rhett.
0: Thank you, Philip. Yeah, thank you both for that conversation, and thank you to the listener for tuning in. We would love for you to subscribe to this podcast so that you can catch up on our old episodes, as well as be the first to hear new ones. And we'd also invite you to visit imsearch.com for more information or follow Isaacson Miller on our socials LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Isaacson Miller. Isaacson Miller's podcast content provides general information only and does not constitute recruiting guidance or advice. No representations or warranties are made with respect to the accuracy or completeness of this content. All liability from the use or misuse of Isaacson Miller's content is hereby expressly disclaimed. The content contained in our podcasts should be used only at your own risk.